Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Colonialism, it's bad, right? This is something we all agree on, at least in the polite company that makes up our cancel culture society of today. This is why we're renaming streets, tearing down statues, and rewriting history books around the world, isn't it? Well, not quite everyone. And the insistence of our next guest that we look at the totality of things, like colonialism even, both in a historical context and an ethical one, is what makes him such an interesting guest. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly, and this is the Full Comment Podcast. Before I bring on our next guest, just a quick reminder, Hit that subscribe button. Doesn't matter where you're listening, be it on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, doesn't matter where, please hit the subscribe button. Make sure you don't miss an episode and please consider leaving a review or sharing this episode by email on social media. We've seen the statues come down around the world and it's not just Confederate generals on horseback celebrating a culture that wanted to preserve slavery. It's the statues of Queen Victoria, Sir John A. Macdonald. Egerton Ryerson and more. Our next guest, Nigel Bigger's new book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, comes out in the first week of May here in Canada. And it began when he felt the need to defend a push to remove a statue of Cecil Rhodes from Oxford in 2016. Bigger is an ethicist by training, and he felt the totality of Rhodes' life and work told a very different story than what his critics portrayed. That led to a full study, a a look back at the issue of colonialism, a form of government that stretches back millennia and across all cultures, but is now portrayed as an evil inflicted upon the world by Western Europe. Nigel, thanks for the time today. Uh, Thanks, Brian, for the opportunity to talk. Did I describe it correctly how this started with you and your decision to say, well, wait a minute, your criticisms of uh, Cecil Rhodes, of which there could be many criticisms, but the criticisms being leveled at him at the time and the demand for his statue to come down just weren't quite right. That's uh, about it, uh, Brian. So we're, we're back in December 2015, and the uh, campaign to make Rhodes fall uh, arrived in Britain from South Africa. And outside what had been my own college, there were protests because the exterior of the college uh, sports. Um, almost out of sight, frankly, um, a small statue of Cecil Rhodes over the high street here in central Oxford. And um, the students were um, uh, clamouring for the statue to be taken down because they said uh, Rhodes was South Africa's Hitler, um, because they claimed he was um, guilty of genocide. Um, And uh, I happened to have been reading... um, um, one of several biographies of Rhodes at the time, and I thought to myself, this is just um, not true, it's a caricature. Um, 
but, but apart from uh, the uh, distorted view of roads that was fueling this protest, I, I was much more concerned about um, the significance of taking down the road statue um, in terms of, of the, the view about Britain's colonial history and, of course, Canada's and Australia's that would uh, triumph through removing the statue because it seemed to me that what was happening was that uh, a distorted view of our colonial history was being projected onto Rhodes and Rhodes was being make, made the fall guy, so to speak. And I didn't want that distorted view of history to triumph. In your book, um, you have an interesting statement that I said, aha, that's it. You said this movement is about the present, not the past. What did you mean by that? Well, one thing I noticed way back um, five, six years ago um, was that um, those clamoring for Rhodes' downfall weren't much interested about the truth about the past, because the, the truth about Rhodes is that he was morally mixed. Uh, let me make clear, he's not a hero of mine. If I was going to raise a poster boy to the British Empire, it wouldn't be Rhodes, because Rhodes was um, he was an entrepreneur, he was a buccaneer, uh, he cut corners. He, he, his practices were sometimes sharp. Um, so he was no saint. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, he was a formidable figure. He, he, um, was, it was responsible for developing a lot of infrastructure in South Africa. He, he didn't, he made a lot of money, but he didn't spend it on himself. He was much more interested in promoting what he regarded as the progressive causes of his time. Um, so, so the, 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 the real roads, the true roads is, is morally mixed. Um, but it, it became clear to me quite early on that those clamoring for his downfall didn't care about the past, about the truth about the past. They were using this as a, uh, as a useful political tool to achieve things in the present. Um, and if you, nowadays, um, um, since the Black Lives Matter across the Atlantic, after the death of uh, uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, a couple of years ago, um, the, the phrase in my country, uh, colonialism and slavery, is, is, is widely used um, as if British colonialism and slavery were the same thing, as if British colonial history can be identified simply with slavery. Um, historically, that's nonsense, because for the second part of its existence, the empire was committed to anti-slavery. But again, the slogan is politically useful. This idea that uh, people are complex, I, I think you use the term morally ambiguous or uh, something to that effect, that can apply to an awful lot of people that uh, these movements are trying to cancel in history, can't it? I mean, uh, very few people are all good or all bad. It, you know, they're often creatures of their day, of their time. And, you know, if we were applying an objective lens instead of one grounded in presentism, as in, well, I'm going to judge a person from 200 years ago by my standards today, if we judge them objectively, we might say, okay, well, here's the good things he did, here's the bad things he did, and we'll make an assessment based on that. Instead, we say, well, how would we judge this person by today's standards? Yes, uh, uh Brian, I, I agree entirely with that. But there, there are two things. First of all, yes, you're quite right. We are judging the past by present standards. I mean, we in Britain and in Canada live in countries that enjoy 
unprecedented levels of prosperity and, and, and peace and security. Um, in order to understand the past, we need to inhabit a world where life in all sorts of respects is far more insecure, far more threatening. Um, so, so, so yes, we judge the, the, the past by the present and we forget how different the past was, but, but also we seem to judge the, the past in an incredibly absolutist and, um, moralistic way. We, we are very unforgiving. Um, I, I happen to be a Christian. So, so the notion that, um, sin exists within me as well as in the outside world and, and in you is very familiar. And one of the merits of, of that view of oneself is it, it, it tempers the, uh, the severity of the way in which we judge other people. So there's also a kind of, in addition to presentism, there's also moralism, which I find quite, quite ugly. But to get to your point about, um, everyone being flawed. Yes. I mean, um, early on, I made the point that, you know, if we want, if we want to raise statues to anybody, um, we've got to put up with, with flawed people because, Yes, uh, Winston Churchill uh, saved the Western world from uh, Nazi rule in the 1940s. Yes, uh, his view of um, Indians was uh, sometimes racist. Yes, Abraham Lincoln uh, was responsible for uh, keeping the US united and proclaiming emancipation. But yes, Abraham Lincoln was not at all confident that uh, black, black Africans uh, could be uh, assimilated into American society and preferred the idea of having them uh, uh, shipped off to some uh, new place in South, South America. Uh, um, 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 uh, Mahatma Gandhi, famous for his uh, non-violent resistance to British rule in India, uh, had very disparaging views of black Africans. Uh, and, and I could go on. Uh, and, and if you're in Washington, I, uh, as I was uh, a couple of years ago, you, you walk past the extremely impressive statue to Martin Luther King um, in central Washington, uh, now that statue, of course, is erected to someone who uh, was a um, a martyr to the cause of civil rights in, in America. But Martin Luther King, it so turns out, was also a serial philanderer. He betrayed his wife, but he, he's not he's not he's not remembered for that. He's remembered because of his civil rights activity. Uh, so I agree entirely. If we're going to have heroes at all, I think we should have heroes. We need to be willing to accept ones that are flawed. I don't want to spend too much time on Cecil Rhodes because I don't think most people think about him anymore beyond the Rhodes Scholarship. He's uh, uh, someone that historians will will uh, ponder and, and discuss, but for the most part, in day-to-day life, we don't go around thinking about Rhodes. But you've described him in, in, in his legacy in some interesting terms. Um, while he's now viewed as a racist, he's someone who sought to give the vote to black South Africans, and, and he's someone who was honored by black South Africans after his death, correct? That's, that's right. I mean, Rhodes is, uh, I mean, um, one thing we all need to do, um, if it's possible, is to have an adult conversation about what we mean by racism. Um, my view is that um, the, the worst kind of racism is that which regards people of another race as naturally biologically inferior and incapable of growing and developing just like anyone else. Uh, so that's what we call kind of scientific racism, which came onto the scene in the late uh, 1800s. Um, but it, it never eclipsed the, the earlier Christian view that notwithstanding different levels of cultural development, 
members of all races are equally capable of of developing and growing, equally capable. Uh, they have equal potential to to grow and develop. And Rhodes um, uh, was not a scientific racist. Uh, when he landed in South Africa in 1870 um, and encountered Bantu Africans at that time, it was manifestly clear to him that uh, he, as a representative of uh, British civilization at the height of its power, was in, in so many ways, uh, technologically, scientifically, commercially, navally, militarily, superior to what he found uh, on the ground in South Africa. Um, and I think we need to, to remember to be a, a bit forgiving of, of Britons uh, um, at that time in history when their own superiority was, 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 was clear to everybody. Um, um, but uh, Rhodes did not think that, that, that Africans were incapable of developing. At one point in 1894 in the Cape Parliament, he said, uh, uh, I, I, I do not believe that they, Africans, are different from ourselves, basically. And you'll find the same thing with uh, John A. Macdonald in your own country, Canada. Um, so I, I don't think Rhodes was actually uh, racist. Um, um, but um, he... Uh, and also, uh, he, he was uh, he was an imperialist, by which I mean he really believed that the British Empire was a force for uh, uh, modernity and that modernity was progress and progress was good. In the same way that contemporary progressives are committed to certain causes, so was Rhodes. And um, such wealth as he made, he didn't spend on himself, unlike, uh, let's say, Jacob Zuma, the recent uh, president of South Africa, who uh, used his has used his power to uh, loot the state for private purposes? Rhodes devoted himself to developing South Africa. When we were talking about this, and Nigel, you lived in Toronto, so you might remember Dundas Street. I do. Um, in in the middle of uh, downtown Toronto, we've also got a Dundas County. We've got Dundas, a, a, a town now part of the city of Hamilton. Uh, we've got plenty of places named for a Scottish politician who never visited Canada, but who was friends with uh, the first governor general of Ontario, John Simcoe Graves. Uh, Dundas, uh, there is a push by activists to say Dundas was a racist and a supporter of slavery. And we've got to uh, take away the street name, change the name to something else, change all the names honoring him to something else, because he delayed the removal of slavery. And, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this controversy, but it, you know, in this case, what he did was helped Wilberforce pass a bill by saying, we'll do it in an incremental fashion, because the attempt to abolish slavery through the legislature, the, through Parliament at Westminster, had already failed twice because it, it wasn't incremental. And so he said, well, if you, if you change the bill to, to go in this direction, it will pass and we will get rid of slavery. And he is now being described in the most horrific terms because they say, well, he extended slavery. Without that compromise, there would have been, you know, who knows when the British Empire would have gotten rid of slavery. Is, are, are we judging people in ways that are fundamentally untrue? To what happened? Yeah, so we're also judging them without any reference to context, Brian. Because um, before we talk about Dundas, let's just remember that slavery was a phenomenon from uh, ancient history in the 
in in Mesopotamia to the modern period. I think it was first it was last abolished in the Ottoman Empire in 1920. Uh, uh, everyone did it um, long before uh, Europeans started trading slaves across the Atlantic in the 1450s or thereabouts. Uh, Africans had been uh, raiding other Africans, enslaving them, and trading them to first of all the Romans and then the Arabs in North America. In the 1700s, the Comanches ran what one scholar calls a vast slave economy in the southwest of what is now the United States. And I was in um, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, visiting my wife's family in January. I visited the Museum of the History of the State of North Carolina. And what did I discover? Um, in 1860, on the eve of the American Civil War, there were 30,000 freed slaves in North Carolina, uh, of which some owned their own slaves. Uh, freed slaves, black Americans, owned their own black American slaves. So common was slavery. So we need to get, that, that may surprise us and appall us. It is a fact. Um, what was extraordinary about um, what developed in uh, Northwest Europe uh, in, the, in the second half of the 1700s and in Britain uh, was the movement that there was the idea that, that owning other, other people, owning other people as your property, uh, when they had no rights whatsoever, was immoral. That was a, an entirely novel idea. And uh, Denmark was the first country in the history of the world uh, to um, abolish the slave trade. Britain followed three years later. And then um, Britain led the world in suppressing slavery um, um, across the Atlantic, from Brazil, across Africa, India, Malaysia. Um, so let, let's just, just get clear. The, the movement to abolish slavery was unprecedented in the world's history, and Britain was a leader. Now, as for why it took so long for people to realize it was so bad, that's an interesting question. But the good news is that people like Wilberforce, supported by Dundas, were moving to have the, 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 the slave trade and then slavery itself abolished. Now, some may say it could have happened more quickly, but the fact of the matter is politics is like that. It takes persuasion. It takes time. It took 50 years from uh, the beginnings of the campaign to abolish the slave trade for slavery itself to be uh, eliminated within the British Empire. Um, and, and after the trade was abolished in 1807, most abolitionists, including black abolitionists, thought that um, um, that, that the institution of slavery in the West Indies would wither by itself if there was no trade to, to bring fresh slaves to, to the West Indies. It was only when it became clear that wasn't happening that in 18, 1820 or thereabouts, they revived the campaign to have uh, slavery itself abolished. But, but my point is, even black abolitionists in the 1810s or thereabouts were gradualists. I, I can't remember the details of, of Dundas's case, but the fact that he counseled gradual abolition um, should not uh, uh, should not be uh, a, a cause for criticism it's um, unfortunately not uh, not popular uh, to stand up for these causes whether it's Dundas or Egerton Ryerson they've renamed that school uh, to get rid of the name because they say he was uh, affiliated with the um, uh, Tenuously, at best, uh, they claim he was affiliated with the residential schools. Uh, 
I, I know you've written about that. I know that you are, are familiar with the residential school system in Canada and some of the, the Canadian history as it relates to colonialism. So let me ask you about that. Somebody like McDonald at, at the Ontario legislature, we've have, had a statue of McDonald boxed up, blocked from public view for more than two years now. There have been statues of McDonald either taken down by politicians or by mobs over the last several years. And the view is, well, he brought in residential schools. He's the racist. He's got to go. I think people forget that, well, a couple of things, like Rhodes, who we were discussing earlier, McDonald was was complex. He may have said some awful things, but he also extended the vote to First Nations. And um, the idea of residential schools was considered the most progressive thing of the day. It was how to benefit everybody. Um, all the experts said it was the right thing. The, it, I, I don't think it came from a source of racism for most people. They thought here is how we, we help better people. The outcome was horrific for many, but does, does that mean that you judge someone by what happened in uh, you know, the 1920s or the 1950s when they were long dead? Yes. I mean, um, so the residential schools um, in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, were deficient in many respects, um, but uh, and, and what I know about the residential schools, I, I've learned mostly from the standard history of the residential schools written by J.R. Miller, uh, called Chingwalk's um, Vision, I think it's called. Um, and um, notwithstanding the deficiencies of the school system, um, Miller says that way back in the 1990s, when uh, 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 native Native Canadians, uh, members of First Nations, who'd had positive experiences of the other residential schools, when they tried to get the media to take them seriously, they found that the media weren't interested. Way back in the nineteen nineties, um, so so there is, uh, and and J.R. Miller himself says that the record of the um, of the residential schools uh, was mixed, uh, but we must speak about it in nuanced and equivocal tones. Well, that ain't the way we're talking about them now. Uh, if we, you know, if we want to be true to history, that's what he says. Um, um, but but getting on to so again, the the current um, uh, campaign is is not based on historical truth. It is based on it is based on the interests of certain groups uh, exploiting the historical ignorance of a, a liberal elite, uh, and also exploiting their propensity to feel guilty about what they don't know about. Um, it's not to do with the truth about the past. Now, in terms of the other important thing about the residential schools is, is to recognise that it, it was it was members of First Nations who lobbied for the schools in uh, I think as early as the eighteen thirties. Why? Because they recognised uh, that um, uh, because of the advent of European modernity and because of the dominance of, of European modernity, not least through the inadvertent spread of disease that native, native peoples in Canada were going to have to adapt, uh, learn to speak English, learn agriculture. And they, they wanted these schools, they lobbied for these schools to be set up so their youngsters could learn a new way of life and, having adapted, could preserve as much of the old as they could. Uh, that's why they were set up, um, in response to uh, native demand. And um, um, 
you will find that even into the 1920s, out west in Canada, uh, First Nations were lobbying for residential schools. Now, if the record of the schools had been as appalling, as universally appalling as it is put about now, that would not have happened. We have documented evidence of abuse, of horrific things happening, but you say that the media weren't interested in the 1990s. I I was on Parliament Hill in 2009 or so when um, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper gave the formal apology for residential schools, and there were a lot of um, people who had attended the schools there. Um, There were chiefs and different elders and, and people coming for the apology. And I spoke to a lot of, of people who'd gone through the schools and, and I heard the horror stories, but I also remember talking to several who said, well, it's important to acknowledge the horror stories and to know that that's there, but that was not my experience. My experience was mainly positive. Those stories aren't told now. We, we seem to um, wash history. I won't say whitewash history because I'm, I'm not sure what we're doing with it, but we, uh, everything is is taken down to a uh, something that's easy to understand and easy to vilify. I think is is what we're doing. No, and and uh, so that that's most easy for the likes of me here in Britain to see in terms of the way in which slavery is talked about. So, so yes, um, for over 150 years, some Britons were involved in. Uh, trading slaves across the Atlantic. Some Britons were involved in making many other plantations in the West Indies and across along the eastern seaboard of, of North America. Um, and um, uh, the treatment of slaves did vary, but at its worst, it was absolutely appalling. Um, so so no, no, no uh, justification of, of British involvement in slavery during that period. Um, however, as I've just said, um, after 1807, the British uh, led the world by using their imperial power to suppress slavery worldwide from 1807 until the empire dissolved in the 1960s. So um, the, the truth is, both happened, the bad stuff and the admirable stuff. Uh, and so with the residential schools, there were horror stories, also good stories. And uh, I'm not arguing, and no one should argue, uh, that we should overlook the bad stuff. All I'm arguing for uh, is that we should recognise the truth about the past is it, w- it was mixed. And we want the whole truth, not just the uh, depressing, demoralising, denigrative, pejorative part. Nigel, we've got to take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, the, um, there's an interesting comparison you make about what happened in uh, India as part of British colonial history, and I want to ask you about that. Uh, this is the Full Comment Podcast. I'm Brian Lilly. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. If, if you want to have a fuller view of history, I definitely recommend Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Uh, it comes out in North America the first week of May. Um, and Nigel, uh, you make an interesting comparison in, in your book and you say, 
you know, as you're discussing this, and, and you are not a historian, uh, you are an ethicist, uh, you've studied history, I believe, but yeah, that's not your, your main academic uh, area. But you say from an ethical point of view, you know, look at two different things. And I'd like you to explain this to me. I, I, I've long cited um, Charles James Napier, one of the governors in India, as an example of uh, colonialism not always being bad. And, and he's the, the governor who uh, Britain had banned the practice of sati. And that was when uh, Hindu uh, women would be burned on the funeral pyres of their husbands. If their husbands died first, well, the wife died on the funeral pyre. And the British banned that, and the Hindu priest went and complained to him, and he said, well, this burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pyre. But my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. My carpenter shall therefore erect gibbets on which will hang all concerned when the widow is consumed. So let's all act according to our national customs. That really helped and the practice of burning women alive, which I, I, I don't know how you don't look at that as a good thing, but you rightly point out, okay, so that's good, but how do we balance that off against other things that happened, like Armistar, which was a massacre? Yeah, just, just before I get on to the really crucial question of how you weigh these things up um, as a whole, let me just comment on the abolition of sati, this practice of... of uh, self-immolation of, of widows. Um, so yes, when the British came across this in the 1820s, they were appalled by it, but there was a discussion about um, how best to, to deal with it, because the worry was if you, if you try and ban it, and, and of course British power was not, was not omnipotent, uh, British power was limited, the worry is that you so um, incense uh, native peoples that that uh, um, they, they they rise up and revolt, and then you've got a revolt on your hands. So the question is how to to deal with this uh, best. And and some people said, well, we need to do it gradually. But interestingly, it was a, an Indian social reformer, Ram Mohan Roy, uh, who campaigned for uh, the East India Company, which then ruled India, to abolish it. Um, and Roy's view prevailed, and in fact, the Governor General did abolish it, and there wasn't uh, any widespread popular reaction. But again, Brian, going back to the discussion of how to abolish slavery, there was a discussion about do we do it gradually or do we do it immediately? Because you're worried about what consequences you're going to have if you do it abruptly. Uh, one one concern about abolishing slavery abruptly is: does that mean that the the, the plantations in West Indies become bankrupt and insolvent? How then are the freed slaves going to be employed? <laughs> So, uh, so that just just that that on on um, the abolition of of sati. Now, as I say in my book, in the conclusion, I say, you know, reviewing the history of the British Empire, we can come up with a list of evils and injustices: slavery, uh, economic disruption, um, the inadvertent spread of disease. But on the other hand, you've got you've got a, a list of benefits. Uh, the abolition of inhumane practices like sooty or child sacrifice or slavery or infanticide um, and and the spread of the rule of law, the pacification of otherwise uh, warring peoples. So you've got these two sets of goods and evils. You've got uh, the, 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 the number of women saved from the funeral pyres versus the several hundred people, for example, massacred, as you say, at Amritsar in 1919. Now, which weighs more heavily? Well, I think just to ask the question, 
is to reveal its absurdity, you can't answer it in terms of weighing things more heavily. Um, you've just got two sets of goods and evils, as you do in in most, um, if you look at the history of most long-standing states, you're going to ha- have bunches of good and, goods and evils. So what I do is say, well, we can't sort it out that way. What we can say is, well, um, uh, we, 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 most of us would agree that there was something centrally evil about the Nazi regime in Germany. It was essentially racist, essentially murderous, and and massively so. So was there something, can we save the British Empire that it was similar to that? And a lot of the uh, um, popular anti-colonial activist critics of the British Empire want to say that Churchill was like Hitler or like that um, various bits of the British Empire were behaved like the Nazis. And so I look at that in my book and I say, no, folks, really not. There was nothing in the history of the British Empire that was similar to what happened in Nazi Germany. Um, uh, so then I say, we, we can't say it was essentially racist or essentially exploitative or essentially given to wanton violence. That's the second stage. And the third stage is to say, what we can say also is that from the early 1800s, um, starting with slavery, expanding to a wider concern for the plight of uh, native peoples in Australia, Africa and, and Canada, there is a growing humanitarian concern um, allied to uh, a growing liberal movement uh, whereby the different bits of the empire, starting with Canada in the 1860s, then Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, um, become increasingly independent. So there's a recognition that Britain can't retain tight control over over the empire. It has to be a, a more loosely f- um, associated group of of um, sympathetic states. And that was extended to India after the First World War. So there's a sense in which the empire has to evolve from an empire into what it became, a commonwealth of uh, sympathetic nations. And then finally, I say, look at how the empire exhausted itself. The empire was at its most violent during the Second World War, fighting uh, Nazi Germany and uh, um, um, manifestly racist uh, Japanese imperialism. And and uh, uh, the, the, it, it, the 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 army that fought um, uh, the, the 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 part of the empire that contributed most troops, of course, was India. And Indian troops volunteered to fight against Japan, and they also volunteered to fight in Europe. My own father fought alongside. Indians and was at one point mistaken for an Indian by some GIs in Italy. Um, so so um, the empire expended itself fighting the massively murderous uh, racist state of Nazi Germany. And between May 1940, when France fell, and June 41, when Russia came into, into the war against, against Germany, the British Empire was the only uh, military force in the field against Nazi Germany, with the sole exception of Greece. Now, the empire remained a moral mixture to the end. Um, but I think you can argue that there were increasingly strong humanitarian liberal strands that, that determined the, the empire's uh, direction. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned your father fighting in Europe alongside Indian soldiers. My grandfather fought uh, in Burma alongside Indian and uh, Gurkha troops yes. to liberate Burma from Japan. Yes. Um, so... My family background is is Irish and Catholic, and um, that part of the uh, empire, not exactly great for my people, um, starting from 1100 until, some would say, still going on today. There's a, a colonial aspect to Britain's desires on, on Ireland, and it, it, at times it had been fine, hundreds of years with no problems. At other times, the penal code and uh, other horrific uh, measures, the famine. 
but colonialism is not something that was just practiced by Britain or even just by Western European countries. It's gone on forever. And there are times when I look and, and I say, well, if you're going to be conquered by somebody, it's, it's better that it's Britain than some of these other colonial powers because a lot of them were worse. Yes. Am I looking at things through rose-colored glasses? No, I mean, I, I do point out that um, um, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that the British Empire has given birth to the most prosperous and most liberal societies now on earth. And the, the United States, of course, is, is part of that. It, it broke off from the empire early, but uh, it, its, it's uh, general direction was, was set by British political ideas. Um, and then, of course, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, and actually Israel. <laughs> um, it's not a coincidence. Um, and um, um, also, I remember visiting Shanghai um, some years ago and was met by a young um, man from Singapore, and we introduced our names, and his name was Daniel. And without pausing for breath, he said to me, um, I want to say to you that we in Singapore, we are grateful to you, British, for establishing the rule of law. And um, um, in the 1950s, uh, late 50s and early 60s, um, something like, something over a million, no one knows quite how many, over a million Chinese volunteered to leave mainland China, which at that point was in the middle of civil war, to enter the uh, non-democratic British colony of Hong Kong. Uh, and they stayed there um, because at least uh, the British co colony of Hong Kong had the rule of law where they could um, um, establish uh, a life and, and where they, they, as it were, legal structures around them were fairly secure and, and predictable. Um, and I remember asking a, uh, um, a Chinese Hong Kong academic colleague uh, when he visited Oxford, I said, um, what did you make of, what do you think about the British colonial legacy in Hong Kong? And he said, well, you know, if, if in the 1950s China had been a liberal democracy, Hong Kong wouldn't look so good. But given what the alternatives were, were, were Hong Kong was much preferable. And he said, my, my grandmother was one of those who uh, uh, fled mainland China for Hong Kong in the 50s and 60s. And he said she never learned to speak English, but she became a lifelong devotee of Princess Dai. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so I guess all, all I want to say is that, that, that you know, um, uh, when you're thinking about colonial rule, you need to think about what, what were the alternatives. What were, the, uh, uh, and I think sometimes British colonial rule looks 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 the best. As we said earlier, when when I look at it through uh, the lens of of what happened in Ireland, it was um, at, at at times it brought good things, and at times it was absolutely horrific. And I think uh, any good assessment has to look at at both and uh, unfortunately now you know we, we've gone from in, employing a hagiography of these things that where they were always good to going in the opposite direction where it's always bad and it's always evil and you know how could we not know that uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle i think you know you're right um um british involvement in in ireland was was sometimes rapacious um, the famine, it's clear to me, was not was not caused by the British. The question is whether the British government could have done more than it did to relieve it, and that's controversial. Um, 
Um, but I, I think it's important to note that um, there were bona fide attempts throughout the 1800s, and especially toward the end of the 1800s, to reform um, British Ireland, uh, particularly in terms of tenure of land and admitting Catholics to um, to uh, the police and the judiciary and, and the legal profession and government. And around 1900, early 1900s, uh, a lot of the reforms had, had been effective. So, um, you know, let, let's take for granted that all political systems are flawed. Uh, one important sign of their health is whether they're capable of reforming, reforming themselves. And I think partly because of Irish representation in the British Parliament in the 19th century, uh, the question of Ireland was kept right at the top of the British agenda, and it did produce change. That's my, my, my piece on Ireland. Yeah, and quite a bit of it from the Anglo-Irish themselves. So, um, like I said, the, the good and the bad. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Th- this sense that um, it's only been the British that were colonial or bad colonials or, or it was just Western Europeans, uh, just walk us through that, that notion. I mean, m- my view of history, I think of whether it's Persian empires, Mongol empires, African empires, there have been empires everywhere. There has been colonialism everywhere. And for most of human history, uh, it has not been uh, a, a matter of uh, self-determination by various ethnic groups. It's, it's been quite the opposite. That's right. Um, the, we need to think about what, what an empire is. And often... What an empire is is simply a people expanding. So in, in Anglo-Saxon England, you have lots of little kingdoms, all of which are vying with one another and um, their borders are insecure. And one way to make yourself, make yourself secure is to take control of adjoining territory. Uh, and where you have an unstable situation like that, you do find particular peoples expanding and controlling other peoples. And exactly the same happened. Uh, in uh, what became Canada among First Nations. First Nations were not sitting there with well-defined boundaries forever. Um, in the 16th, 1700s, uh, various uh, um, of the First Nations were vying with each other and pushing each other off land and taking control of it and expanding. I'm thinking, I think I'm thinking of, of the Iroquois in particular. Um, so this, this notion of, of imperial expansion is not European. Uh, the Zulu in South Africa uh, um, um, emerged on the scene in the 1820s and expanded and pushed other African peoples to three of the four winds. Um, so an empire, you're right. I mean, it, it's been a phenomenon since ancient period, as I say, until in the, case, in the Ottoman case of the 1920s. Uh, I've been running uh, a project uh, for the last six years called Ethics and Empire and designed to look at how uh, peoples in the past, ancient China, the medieval Muslim world, how did they see empire ethically in their own terms at their own time? One uh, really uh, striking uh, result of our five, six-year research is that uh, if you look for uh, ancient Chinese or medieval Muslim uh, critiques of empire as such, you won't find them. You will find discussions of what, 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 of what makes for a, a virtuous on or vicious emperor, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find treatises in what makes for good and bad government. But empire as a political form was completely unremarkable because it was so common. It, it was just there. It, it was one of the options. It just, just there. Just there. And, and for, for some people, for some people, um, 
um, um, the, the virtues of empire were clear. That's to say, if you have an overarching authority, one thing the authority can do is to moderate conflicts between different peoples. Um, and uh, uh, so what, you have, what, what happens when empires collapse is that conflicts that were contained uh, blow up. And you found that um, to some extent when the, when the Federation of Yugoslavia collapsed in the 1990s. Uh, long, long contained conflicts blew up and there was, there was uh, horrific bloodshed. Yeah, and depending on who you speak to, uh, Yugoslavia was uh, a, a model of uh, good governance or oppression. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, so, yeah, yeah. so, so, so we're back to look, looking at it, uh, looking at all of this. Uh, as being much more complex than I think we often give credit for. Uh, history is is a messy business. Uh, it's a really fascinating business. I mean, I, All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, N- Nigel, um, I, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for uh, for your book. I'm going to encourage everyone to, to read it. If you're a historian, uh, not like I am, and it's a different view of history taken from a, an ethical lens, and it comes out just as uh, – uh, the coronation it comes out here anyway. It's, it's been a bestseller in, in Britain for a while, but uh, it comes out in Canada just as we're dealing with the coronation of King Charles III. Um, there's a, a, a colonial legacy in a recent poll showing an awful lot of Canadians just want to say, oh, forget about the monarchy. We're done. But we'll see where that conversation goes in the future. Thanks for the time, Nigel. Uh, thanks, Brian, very much for the, for the conversation. A full comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. As I said earlier, remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, anywhere you get your podcasts. Please hit the subscribe button. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices, and you can help us out by giving us a rating, leave a review, share it on social media, email it to your Aunt May and Whitby, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.